Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. It's the last book in your Bible, Revelation. It's not Revelations. It's Revelation. It's one Revelation. It's a single apocalypse. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in the chair in front of you. It looks like this. You can go ahead and grab that, and you can turn to, um, let's see here, page 1090. Page 1090 in the Pew Bible, you'll find Revelation there. The two is the big number if this is the first time you're looking at a Bible, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So chapter 2, big number, verse 12, small number, and we'll go to verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord to the church at Pergamum and now to Bethany Baptist Church this Sunday morning. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, thus says the one who has the The sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teachings or the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May His word and the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father in heaven, we pray now. As you have spoken to us in the reading of your word, we pray now that you would speak to us in the preaching of your word, that we would be given ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to our church family this morning. Lord, we don't have the power to soften our hearts. We don't have the power to make ourselves see. We don't have the power to make ourselves hear with humility. And so we pray what we sung, speak, O Lord. And may we receive your teaching with humility. Change us transform us. Apart from you, we can only grow in knowledge that would puff us up in arrogance and self-deception. So break that here. Deliver us from the evil one. Bring us not into temptation. May your name be honored as holy through the meditation now and the preaching and hearing of your word. And Lord, speak and transform the children as well. May the gospel raise the dead Take out hearts of stone, put in hearts of flesh, and write your law on their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever drove down an unfamiliar part of the freeway and then realized a few exits later that you're going the wrong direction? I did that on the five freeway a few uh, a, a while back where I was going and I was listening to a podcast and I was so focused on what I was listening to that I was going on the five south for 20 minutes and then I realized, 
I'm not getting closer to home. I'm going further south. And so to go 20 minutes one way means I lost 40 minutes, right? Because 20 minutes that way and then 20 minutes back. And I was so frustrated that I went the wrong way for so long without realizing it. It was frustrating to think I was going the right way only to realize later I was going the wrong way. Well, in a far more, infinitely more significant sense, my greatest fear in life is to think that I am walking with Jesus and then to stand before him and say, here I am, Lord. And then he says, who are you? You say, Lord, Lord. Um, or, um, not, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Lord, wasn't I at Bethany Baptist Church? Didn't I preach sermons? Didn't I try to disciple people and, and tell people about Jesus, about your son? I don't know who you are. Depart from me. All the while, I thought I was a real Christian, only to find out when it's too late that I'm not. Listen to Charles Spurgeon, who touches on this fear and leads to, I told you my first greatest fear is me going the wrong way. Here's my second greatest fear, and Charles Spurgeon kind of leads us into it. He says this, does the Lord Jesus come to his church in that way with a sword? Does he at the door of the church bear a sword, a sword unscabbarded, a sharp sword, a sharp sword with two edges? Yes, even to his visible church, this is how our Lord Jesus Christ appears. He turns the sword against those within the church who had no right to be there. It is no trifling thing to be a church member. I could earnestly wish that certain professors had never been members of the church at all. For if they had been outside the church, they might have been in far less peril than they are within its bounds. Outside, their conduct might have been tolerated, but it is not consistent with an avowal of discipleship towards Jesus. I say this with deep sorrow. O oh, false professors, you may go down to hell readily enough without increasing your damnation by coming into Christ's church with a lie in your right hand. Alas, for those who are not Christians in heart and yet profess to be so, such ought to be startled by the vision of the Lord himself drawing near to a church with a sharp sword in his hand. My second greatest fear is sharing life and sharing Jesus with my church family who have deceived themselves and will face judgment in part because of my neglect as a fellow member and even as a pastor in charge of overseeing their souls. Matthew 25, 31 to 46 talks about this great judgment when Jesus comes again and he separates the sheep from the, from the what? sheep from the goats, and as he's separating them, he says to the sheep on his right, come and enter into, come into, come and enter into my rest. He says, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on the left, the goats, he will say, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. My fear is that if that you know, in this imagery that we're all there and he starts separating us, right? And so you see all these Bethany Baptist church members. Of course, we're going to the, the sheep side. 
But then you see one of our members, go to, he puts you on the other side. And he puts another one on the other side. And he puts another one on the other side. And you're like, no, no, wait, he was one of our members. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. That's my greatest, that's my second greatest fear. Is that the, the, the church family that I devote my life to as a member of the church, that some would not make it because they have deceived themselves. And we'll see on the judgment day. We are in danger of going the wrong way as a church and as church members without even realizing it. Far more detrimental than going down the freeway for 20 minutes and losing 40 minutes of time. This mistake can cost us or our loved ones, our fellow church members, their eternal experience. Church health is not a game, nor is it a way of comparing ourselves with other churches and say, our church is healthier than another church. It's not a matter, it's a matter of heaven and hell for those who are part of our church and those who interact with our church. Jesus tells us in Revelation, or in the book of Revelation, in chapter um, 13, we see in verses 6 and 7 that there's a beast who puts pressure on the church. In, in chapter 13, verses 6 and 7 of Revelation, I'm sorry, um, I went ahead a little bit here in my notes. Um, this letter here in Revelation 2, 12 through 17, it's telling us that we need to conquer and listen to the Holy Spirit because there's a danger for our church family in how we conquer. In this letter, we learn to conquer by, you're not going to be surprised by this. What do you think the main command is in Revelation 2, 12 through 17? Anyone want to guess? So what's the main command in all these seven churches, generally speaking? Repent, right? Repent. How do you conquer Satan who wants to deceive you and trick you and pull you and your church family down to hell? You, you, you conquer Satan by repenting. So here's the main goal. If you're taking notes, here's the main goal. The main goal is realize and repent of the sin you've been tricked into holding. We're talking about trickery here. We're talking about being unaware. Repent, realize and repent of the sin you've been tricked into holding so that you all receive your eternal reward. Realize and repent of the sin you've been tricked into holding. To repent or to conquer, we must repent. So why should we repent according to this, this passage? I'm getting the command from verse 16. You see it there, Revelation 2, 16? It says, so repent. There's a command, repent. But the first word before repent is so, so repent, therefore repent. He's, he's giving us reasons why we need to repent as a church. So let's go through four reasons why we need to repent as a church so that we are not tricked into holding, uh, we're not tricked into holding sin and losing our reward. Okay, four reasons why we need to repent. Beginning in verse 13. Reason number one why you need to repent. Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, yet you're holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. So is this, is this church being commended or rebuked? Commended, right? They have been going through suffering, and yet they have been what? They've been enduring faithfully, right? I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. You guys are under pressure. You guys are being persecuted. And in the midst of the pressure, I know where you live, and you guys are holding on to my name. You didn't even deny your faith in me. So here's reason number one why you need to repent. Repent because God's already been working in you. God has been pouring out his grace. There's evidences of grace in the church at Pergamum, which is why you need to keep repenting in your life. Growth in your Christian life is not a reason to not repent. It is a reason to repent more, right? So repent because of the fact that you have endured satanic assault, 
satanic pressure. They have endured satanic assault and pressure. That's reason number one. Repent because you've endured satanic assault. Notice here in verse 13, he says, I know where you live, where whose throne is? Satan's throne is. This is where Satan lives. Satan lives in the city of Pergamum. That's strange, right? Where's the throne of Satan in the world in the first century? Pergamum. Now, in the book of Revelation, this contrast, there's a big throne theme in Revelation. Who's the one who sits on the throne? The one seated on the throne over and over in Revelation. Who is that? God, right? It's God the Father. God the Father there seated on the throne. But here in Pergamum, who's seated on the throne in Pergamum? Satan is seated here. He runs that town. It's where Satan lives. What does that mean, where Satan lives? Well, this is the location where he runs things. This is, um, now why? There, there might be different reasons. There was a temple to Zeus there, or an altar, a throne altar. It was a throne altar to Zeus in Pergamum. So, and Zeus was the king of the gods. Now, he's not a real god, but you know, Zeus with a lightning bolt. He has a throne altar in Pergamum. Maybe that's what Jesus is referring to, the idolatry of worshiping Zeus. There was another god, um, or they also had um, emperor worship here. Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor that had a temple dedicated to the living emperor as God, as a son of God. So you'd have temples dedicated to emperors and you, you worship them as God after they die? Well, Pergamum in 29 AD was the first city to have a, a, a temple to the living emperor. And so it could refer to imperial worship. I mean, Emperor Domitian demanded that people confess him as Lord and God. Does that sound familiar? Lord and God? Emperor Domitian, the Roman emperor, declared that, that you would do that. And so that was happening there in Pergamum. There's another god there. There's a lot of idols there. I'll see if I can say this right. Askelopius. Askelopius. The god of healing. Have you heard of Askelopius before? The god of healing? You know what this god's sign was? A serpent. We use a serpent in our medical stuff for healing, right? The, the staff with... The, um, the snake. So here, the God of healing was in this, the image of a serpent. So there's an image of a serpent there that people would worship for healing from their sicknesses. Now, if you're a Bible thinker, and the Christians were, and you're going to, to um, you're hanging out with your neighbors, and they're bowing down before a serpent, what do you think? Satan, right? I mean, it, it's, it's so clear. So, so this is where Satan lives. This is where idolatry dwells. This city was rampant with all kinds of idolatry. And when you cross these idols, whenever you step on someone's idol, their real functional God, you get their wrath. You want to see what people really value? What do they get mad about? What do they get angry about? That shows their God. And if it's not about sin against the holy God, the triune God of the Bible, then it's an idol. And people do get angry for all kinds of things. Even I did in my sin this week. And so... Here, um, this, this dwelling place of Satan, this concentrated presence and activity of Satan, it is expressed in opposition and persecution of the church. So if you go to Hebrews 13, or not Hebrews, sorry. If you look at Revelation 13, there in your Bible, look at Revelation 13, verses 6 and 7. Keep your finger in Revelation 13. We're going to go back to it two or three times. Revelation 13, 6 and 7, it talks about the first beast of the dragon that's called out of the sea. And in verse 6 it says, this beast began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his dwelling. Blaspheme who? Those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Verse 10, 
Call to the Christians. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. This calls for what? Endurance and faithfulness from who? From the saints, from Christians. You will have pressure from the city. You will have pressure from society. You will be threatened with persecution. And this church suffered well. This church suffered well. Praise God that this church suffered well. And that's why they should repent from their other sins, because they've endured satanic assault here in this city. They have held on to his name and have, did not, have not denied their faith in Jesus. They trusted in Jesus. They trusted in the gospel. They kept gospelizing even when people told them to be quiet, to shut their mouths. They kept on holding to biblical teaching, to morals and to, to, to theology and to ethics in their city and in their society, even when people told them, stop saying that, that's offensive to me. That's hate speech. Stop saying those things. They would, they would speak the truth. Probably, hopefully, biblically commanded, speak the truth in what? In love, and yet even when you speak the truth in love and humility, you still get persecution and pushback. And so Jesus told us this in Matthew 24, 9. They will hand you over for persecution and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. And they stood up to persecution. Remember Jesus said in the previous church that we covered two weeks ago, be faithful to the point of what? Death. Here in this city, 70 miles over, there was a brother named Antipas who was faithful to the point of death. They have faithful witnesses who are actually being killed. So Antipas is an example to the previous church in Smyrna of what Jesus was calling their church to do. The point here is that they have not loved their lives to the point of death. They have been faithful, holding to the gospel and gospelizing, Revelation 12, 11. And this is normal Christianity. In persecu at persecution.com, there's a prayer request for now, N-O-U, or new, whose family tried to kill him. This is from Vietnam. N-O-U, how do you pronounce that? Anyone know? Okay. Well, I'll say new for now. New for now. Okay. Anyways. Um, in February 2017, a Hmong Christian brother, knew was confronted at his house by a relative with a gun, a knife, and the intent to kill him. Brother knew has been persecuted by family members repeatedly since coming to faith in Jesus Christ two years ago. After their attempts at persuading him to deny Christ failed, they turned to anger and threats. When the relative showed up at his house last month, a neighbor prevented the relative from shooting Brother New. But the relative was still able to pull a knife out of his bag and injure Brother New. He was taken to the hospital for treatment. Suffering where Satan lives. Facing the beast who wages war and persecutes and threatens and intimidates and insults Christians for standing up for Christ and the gospel. What does this mean for us as a church family? Brothers and sisters, you need to realize that God is working in this church, and you have endured. You have maybe not endured a knife to your throat or a gun to your head, but you have endured in holding to Christ and to the gospel in the midst of a society where Satan runs the world, where Satan runs the society. You're still here as Bethany Baptist Church. You're still holding on to the truths we proclaim. I mean, I just read today the statement on stewardship from our statement of faith, but we have other statements here that are very offensive and unpopular in this season of our country's life. Is, it not, is that not the case? We publicly take a stand on controversial truths, and we do so publicly as a church. Our statement of faith is on our website. 
We're not hiding what we believe as a church. We declare what the Bible teaches. Even if it's unpopular, we endure even when Satan and those who follow him would go against us. Brothers and sisters, you have endured. Some of you individually have endured. You've had the hard conversation and an awkward a situation where you speak the truth and love to a non-Christian or to a Christian, haven't you? Where you have done the hard rebuke, you have done the hard reproof, you've had the hard conversation, and you've endured satanic pushback because of your love for Jesus and your love for people. So repent when God tells you to repent. We haven't named the sin yet, but when Christ tells us to repent, you've done so well in some areas of your ministry and life, continue to repent. The world needs to know that they cannot force Christians, if you're not a Christian here, if you're part of the world, our message to the world is, world, you cannot force Christians out of their true convictions because Jesus commends us and he sustains us. We will hold on to the truth in love. If you're a family member and you love your family, which you should, brothers and sisters, love Jesus more than you love your family. Your families, your families can easily become the downfall and the way Satan gets you to stop holding on to Jesus. Make it clear to your family members that Christ is infinitely more valuable than your family in all the ways that are righteous without neglecting your family responsibilities. Jesus said, didn't he not, did he not in Matthew 10, I came to turn man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. The person who loves father or mother, or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it. And anyone losing his life because of me will find it. Be careful and continue to endure in holding to Christ even when your family members don't understand that Jesus is infinitely valuable. If you're single, love God more than companionship if that's what you desire or the cause you're rightfully devoted to in other areas. If you're not a Christian, you might think, man, Christians are crazy. They just want to suffer for this man named Jesus. I mean, this church is kind of going overboard a little bit. Go embrace suffering. Don't just tolerate it when it comes, but actually go to the hard places and love Jesus and love people even if it means suffering and embrace suffering. You guys are weird. That's what you might think as a non-Christian. My response is, we're not crazy. We're just convinced. We're convinced that Jesus is Lord and that he is good. And you too can have life in Jesus and taste the goodness of God if you will come to Jesus. So realize and repent of sin that you've been tricked into holding because you've endured satanic assault. The second reason, and now we're going to name the sin. The second reason, or at least part of the sin. In verses 14 and 15, conquer sin by repenting because, Why? Because you have some there, look at verse 14. I have a few things against you, or I have a little against you, Jesus says. You have some there in your church who hold to the teaching of who? Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So where's this threat coming from? Where's the sin coming from? Is it coming from you being tempted from the outside? Is the sin on the outside or on the inside of the church? It's on the inside of the church. You have some members of your church who hold to the teaching of Balaam, leading them to sexual immorality and to, eating, and to idolatry, eating meat sacrificed to idols. 
The threat is within the camp. It's within their ranks. Notice here, he's not saying that they are committing sexual immorality and idolatry yet. That's going to go on to the next church. He says you have some, he doesn't say you have some there who are committing sexual immorality and idolatry. He says you have some there who, who what? Read it, read it, read it carefully in your text. Verse 14. You have some there who what? Teaches close. Not you have some there who teach these things, but you have some there who what? Hold to the teaching. Okay? Teaching is going to be in the next letter in, in uh, Thyatira. But here in Pergamum, it's not that you have teachers with false teaching. You have members who are holding to what? False teaching. It's not, that, it's not that necessary that there are members in the church who are teaching these things publicly. It's that members are thinking these things privately. You get it? We're constantly living in this world. We're constantly breathing in the air of this world and drinking at the fountain of this world. And so it's very easy that we all have come in this week inhaling living in the world. And you can start to hold on to some of these teachings. And you have some there, he says to the church here. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. This is deceptive teaching. Uh, deceptive um, teaching in the sense that it, it's in the thinking of the people. What does Paul tell us to do in 2 Corinthians 10? To take every what captive to Christ? To take what? Every thought. Not just for the teachers. Every member needs every single one of their thoughts and feelings to be captivated by who? Jesus. Is every one of your thoughts captive to Christ? Do you have any rogue thoughts and feelings in your life? That's sinful, and that can be the teaching of Balaam. You hold to some of those rogue lies and thoughts in your mind. Francis even confessed some of those for us, led us in confessing some of those thinking, those, those thoughts that run across our mind that go unchecked. We don't preach against those thoughts in our mind. We let those thoughts rattle around in our head, and you could find yourself holding on to the teaching of Balaam in the church, in a gospel preaching, suffering for Jesus' church. It happens. It happened here. This is the second beast in Revelation. Revelation 13, 11 through 17. I told you to keep your finger there, but for the sake of time, we'll, we won't go back there to, to read it. But the second beast, it says, he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. Lamb and dragon, lamb and dragon. He's not the lamb or the dragon. Who's the lamb in Revelation? Jesus. Who's the dragon in Revelation? Satan. And this second beast, not the first beast, the second beast, he looks like a lamb, but his voice is the voice of a dragon. It looks like Jesus, smells like Jesus, smells like Christianity. I'm not thinking unbiblical thoughts. These are Christian thoughts. Looks like the lamb, yet it's the voice of the dragon. That's inside churches, not outside of churches. Because here we are um, understanding ourselves to be worshiping the lamb today, right? That's why we came here, to worship the lamb, right? That's what we understand ourselves to be doing. But we need to be aware that we might actually be worshiping the dragon or be falling, falling um, under the trick of the dragon where we think where he looks like Jesus, but it's actually the voice of Satan. That happens. And so what is the teaching of Balaam? Well, do you guys know the story of the teaching of Balaam? I'm not going to have you turn there, but you can look at Numbers 23, Numbers 25, and Numbers 31. Let me just summarize it for you. So Balaam was called by God. Not by God. He was called by Balak, the Midianite. So Israel was going through the wilderness. They're going on their way to the promised land, right? As they're going through, you got a million people traveling, right? That's not a little bit of people. you got a lot of people marching through. And so they're going through various lands. When they're going on their way to the promised land, they need to go through Midian. But Midian doesn't want to let them through. So you got this huge camp of a million people outside your border. And the king or the ruler there, Balak, was like, 
these people are about to take us over. I'm scared of these people. We've got a million strangers outside. And so he calls on Balaam, a, Balaam, a prophet of Yahweh, to come. I know. Let's call Balaam. He's been a faithful prophet. Let's call Balaam. Let's get him over here. And if he can curse these people, then we'll be okay. We just need Balaam the prophet, whose prophecies always come out. We just need him to prophesy and curse these people. Then we'll be good. So he sends messengers to Balaam, and he says, we'll give you all the money, all the riches, all the pleasures, anything we have in Midian. We'll give it all to you. Just please come and curse these people. And Balaam goes. You guys know some of the story. There's a donkey that talks along the way. Interestingly enough, maybe I should point this out. As the donkey, is, the donkey won't go forward, and um, Balaam doesn't know why, so he starts beating his donkey. And then the donkey says, why are you hitting me? Okay, I don't want to get into the theology of donkeys talking right now, but why are you hitting me? And he says, because you're not going forward. He, he doesn't even find it strange, you know, he says, because you're not going forward. You keep hitting my leg against the wall. And then, um, and then God opens Balaam's eyes because the donkey saw something Balaam didn't see. There's an angel standing there with a what? With a sword. And the angel says, if you would have came one step closer, I would have cut, I would have killed you. I would have sliced you up. You should be thankful that your donkey stopped. The sword, the double-edged sword, that's here in Revelation in this church as well, right? Who has, who has a double-edged sword here? Jesus does. You hold to the teaching of Balaam? We'll get to that in a second. I'm going a little bit ahead of myself. The point here, so Balaam goes. He goes there to, to the place. He's about to curse. He wants to curse because he wants the money. He wants the pleasures. He wants the power. He wants the influence. He wants the approval. He wants the popularity. And so he wants to say it, but as he's about to curse, only blessing comes out. And Balak is like, no, stop blessing them. You're supposed to curse them. And he's like, here, let's go to this part. Why don't you curse them on this side? Because they're all over the place. So he goes over here, and he says, yeah, go curse them on this side. And he's about to say, cursed Israel. And he's like, blessed be Israel. And he's like, what are you doing? So he goes to another point. Just maybe if you just see, just see a little tenth of them, of the camp on this side. If you just stare here, don't look at all of them, but just, just curse this group right here. Just curse a little bit of them. And, and, and just do that. And so Balaam says, I can only say what Yahweh tells me to say. And so he tries to speak a cursing and only comes out blessing. Then Balaam leaves. It looks like it's, he's unsuccessful. So what happens? Two chapters later in Numbers 25, the Midianites get some of their women to seduce the men and sleep with and have sexual immorality with the men of Israel. And Yahweh turns against Israel and starts killing them. He starts killing Israelites in judgment. You, turn, you, you, you find out later in Numbers 31 that whose idea was that? It was Balaam's idea. You don't see it in, as you read the narrative, but later Balaam said, you know what, I can't curse them. I can't go directly against, against them because it's biblically true that they're blessed. And I can't get at their doctrinal biblical teaching, but what I can do is give you a side door. I can give you a back door way to get them messed up. Why don't you get some of your women to sleep with their men? If you get them committing sexual morality, they'll start worshiping those gods of, of your women. Then Yahweh will get mad at them, and then you'll be okay taking care of your enemies. That is the teaching of Balaam. It's not false doctrine straight up. Jesus is not God. Yahweh has not blessed Israel. It's the side door. It's the backdoor trick to get God's people astray from God's will. That's what happened. So what's the teaching of Balaam? It's the teaching of, um, it, it's, it's teaching that I can still worship Jesus and still do these things. I can still worship Yahweh and sleep with that woman and worship their gods too, but I'm still worshiping Yahweh. 
I can still worship Jesus, I can still go to church, I can still preach sermons and then do this in my private time or in my private life or only at work and at, when I'm at work I could do these things but in the rest of my life I'm gonna obey Jesus. We can compartmentalize our lives and think that we can have Jesus and something against Jesus as if they're both okay. That's the teaching of Balaam. Simultaneously holding to God and yet eating meat sacrificed to idols. Committing idolatry and immorality. It could refer to spiritual immorality, which is adult, that's idolatry, or even physical immorality. It, it actually goes together oftentimes. And sexuality, which Francis talked about also in her prayer, it's a powerful God-given gift to humanity. Amen. But it's also a powerful weapon in Satan's hand when it's distorted and misused. And so Balaam preys on that side door way of getting at God's people. Satan is pretty tricky, isn't he? He's the tough enemy. And what is the teaching of the Nicolaitans? It's whatever, well, we don't know what it is. The short answer is we don't know what it is. But it's something I would say, if it's, if it's in line with Balaam, it's, it's something that's subtle, that subverts Christian discipleship, but it's not obvious on the face. It could be lawlessness. Christ died for all our sins, so therefore you don't have to obey him anymore. Just Jesus died for you, you can live however you want, because Jesus died for you. That's lawlessness, antinomianism. It could be that. We don't know exactly. What are some sneaky false teachings that creep up into the church today? What are some of the sneaky false teachings that lead to idolatry and immorality and sins in the church today while we still say we trust in Jesus? In Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, expository-preaching churches. Here are some. Homosexuality. Homosexual, the homosexuality issue inside the church and beyond the Southern Baptist Convention. In our statement of faith, we say Christians should oppose every form of greed, selfishness, vice, including all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We had in our Southern Baptist Association here in LA, where we believe that statement, we had a church that was trying to say that it was okay for, um, for um, same-sex marriage to be accepted before God. They're actually saying, we're not saying it's right or wrong, we're saying nothing. They're trying to be a third way. That's kind of how tricky it is. We don't want to say we're for it. We're just saying that the church shouldn't. If some members want to do it, they can. If the others don't, if some want to be for it or against it in our church, we just want to be on the gospel. We all believe in Jesus, but we don't want to take a stand on this issue. Well, not taking a stand on this issue is taking a stand on the issue, is it not? And, it, and if it is, you have this teaching creeping in, and, and it gets difficult. Brother, I don't want, brothers and sisters, I don't want to minimize how difficult it is because it's when you have family members and loved ones who are in it it's not because you're convinced biblically from study of the Bible. It's when you have loved ones that you deeply, truly, carefully, I mean, um, passionately care about. And they're burdened by these things. It's the side door teaching of Balaam that gets you to um, affirm um, sexual immorality. So, that, so some people hold to Christ and that. Other people hold to Christ and other sexual immorality. Sinful and illeg illegitimate divorces. We talked about divorce a few weeks ago, right? In this church. Some people say, I hold to Jesus, and yet I hold to a, a sinful view of divorce, or I affirm um, illegitimate or sinful divorces. Others, it could be adultery, or fornication, or pornography, or self-pleasuring, or unchecked lustful thoughts that is widely accepted in churches. I mean, it's so pervasive in terms of the culture of pornography in America today that churches have largely just given up. It's just, it's just what it is. You just accept it for what it is, and let's move on to other things. As if you can hold to Jesus and just settle. You can't settle. We can't settle. You can't hold to the teaching of Balaam and Christ at the same time. Amen. Or it could be false love, the, the false love of non-confrontation. Does that happen in churches? I love Jesus, but I don't want to confront anyone's sin. 
You can't love Jesus and love your church members well if you don't confront sin. You cannot. It is impossible. I was just sharing upstairs during, we did a church history class for the membership class today, and they're asking about some of the history of, of my pastoring in, in this church and other churches. And I said, I, there was one time where a church member left the church because they were complaining about another member of the church, and I said, oh, great, let's talk to them. If you're intimidated by them, I'll go with you and talk to them. Let, let's go let them know their sins so that we can deal with it. And instead of that, they're like, nope, I'm out of here. And they left the church. That's a false love. As if I can follow Jesus and I don't have to actually deal with sins of fellow members in the church. You can't, that's, that's, teach, that's, that's teaching of Balaam, mixing faithfulness to Jesus and unfaithfulness as if you can hold them together and still be a faithful Christian. Can't do it. That's an unbiblical, satanic view of love. And it's in churches all over the place. What about racism? Isn't racism an issue in American evangelical churches? There's a sneaky assumption, a satanic assumption, I would say, in American churches today that there is not a cumulative effect of pressure on the African-American community that is different and heightened from other ethnic minorities in America today. Churches will just say, well, well um, so if you say something that's a pressure on the African-American community, well, what about this community? They also have pressure too. As if it's exactly the same and there's no distinctions. It's sneaky and it's satanic. When you assume there is no systemic pressure on them, it leads to sinful actions and incomplete Christian discipleship. In the Together for the Gospel Affirmations and Denials, it says, we affirm that God calls his people to display his glory in the reconciliation of the nations within the church and that God's pleasure in this reconciliation is evident in the gathering of believers from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And then it says this, this is an American document here. We acknowledge that the staggering magnitude of injustice against African Americans in the name of the gospel presents a special opportunity for displaying the repentance, forgiveness, and restoration promised in the gospel. We further affirm that evangelical Christianity in America bears a unique responsibility to demonstrate this reconciliation with our African-American brothers and sisters. And then it says, we deny that any church can accept racial prejudice, discrimination, or division without betraying the gospel. That's just a statement saying that, that there's pressure and you need to acknowledge it and deal with it in the American church. We have brothers, I have brothers in Christ who have left together for the gospel's statement because of this. They were part of it for 10 years, and yet now, because this is actually becoming a discussion issue, they're actually leaving the group and starting new groups. It's in the church. It's in the church, and it's from the side door. The beast is, he, he looks like a lamb, but his voice is like the what? The dragon. Now, let's get personal. What about you? Do, you? do you or I, do we hold to sneaky idols amongst ourselves personally while at the same time holding to Jesus? Let me read to you a list of idols that Tim Keller points out in the book Counterfeit Gods. Sexual idols, addictions such as pornography and fetishisms that promise but don't deliver a sense of intimacy and acceptance. Ideals of physical beauty in yourself and or your partner or romantic idealism. What about political or economic idols? Some of you are really on a high from last um, election. Some of you are on a low, or maybe you're split because I guess it was sort of split. But what are some politi- political economic idols? Ideologies of the left, right, and libertarian that absolutize some aspect of political order and make it the solution. Deifying or demonizing free markets, for example. Racial or national idols, and I already talked about some of those. Racism, militarism, nationalism, or ethnic pride um, that turns bitter or oppressive. Relational idols, dysfunctional family, systems of codependency, fatal attraction, living your life through your children. Relational idols. 
Family idols, worshiping your family. Religious idols, moralism and legalism, idolatry of success and gifts, religion as a pretext for abuse of power. Christian idols even, we could say, can I say Christian idols? Is there such a thing? Church idols, becoming a leader in the church and idolizing that while still trying to hold on to Jesus. Can't do it. Cultural idols, radical individualism in the West that makes an idol out of individual happiness at the expense of community. Or shame cultures like Asian cultures of the East that make an idol out of family and the clan at the expense of individual rights. Any idols like that going on in our church? Nah, not our church, right? What about deep idols? What are the deep idols here? Motivational drives and temperaments that are made into absolutes. For example, power idolatry. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. Or approval idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I am loved and respected by fill in the blank. Or comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure and experience or quality of life. Or control idolatry, lastly. Life only has meaning and I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of fill in the blank. Brothers and sisters, the teaching of Balaam is in our churches. It's in our churches, and so we need to be careful. It's not enough to hold to true biblical teaching and hold to a doctrinal statement and uphold expository preaching. It's what we think in our minds and what we feel in our hearts day to day throughout the week. That's what Jesus is after here. So what do we do? How do we counter false teaching that's in our hearts, in our members? Well, we meditate on Scripture. We receive correction. We ask God to reveal the straying ways within us. We obey everything the Bible commands us without compromise. Don't short your obedience to the Bible's commands. Don't pick some Bible commands as your confidence while you deny or disobey other Bible commands. That is surely the path towards idolatry and immorality. Church family, we are the pillar and foundation of the truth. Let us listen to each other and let's share life with each other where we get a sense of each other's lives. Have meaningful conversations with each other. Ask meaningful questions of each other. So that you can care for each other. Because brothers and sisters, I have idolatry. I, there's a, the seedbed of the teaching of Balaam is in all of our hearts, right? Amen. It's there. And if you never ask me meaningful questions about my life, I don't have an excuse for my sin, but it might grow and go unchecked. I, I, I um, sincerely and meaningfully depend on you, fellow church members, to help me. We depend on each other. And so let's, let's have those conversations together. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, um, you need to know that Christians who hold to the Bible, they can never, they will, they will always fight against compromise. And so sometimes Christians seem stubborn. They're just trying to really trust Jesus. Parents, teach your children biblical and theological truths. Teach them the logic of those truths, how it shapes a worldview, and teach them how to live it in their lives. And the way you teach it is not just by your words. It's by your repentance and your faith in front of them. Kids, kids listen up. Be teachable. Because the teaching of Balaam is in the world, you need to be teachable. Your parents and your church family are not against you. We love you. We love you. But we are against your sin and foolishness. So don't get mad when you're corrected or taught. Instead, try to learn as much as you can and thank those who correct you and help you follow Jesus. In other words, be a weird kid. You want to be a weird kid? Seek correction. Kids don't do that. And we adults laugh, but we're laughing kind of quietly because we don't do that either. Kids don't seek correction. But be a kid who seeks correction 
and then thank people when they correct you and help you follow Jesus. Okay, so that's the second reason. Realize and repent of... Um, Realize and repent of the sin that you've been tricked into holding because you've endured satanic assault. Secondly, because you've been tricked through the back door. Thirdly, our fourth point is short, just to give you some encouragement. Thirdly, conquer by repenting because Jesus holds us responsible. The third reason is because Jesus holds us responsible. Look at verse 16, brothers and sisters. Look at verse 16. What does Jesus command? So what? What's the command? Say it out loud. What's the command? So repent. Otherwise, Why? Otherwise, I will come to you and fight against them with the what? With the sword of, my, sword of my mouth. Did you follow that? Everyone look up here for a second. I just want to see if you're following that. So repent. Otherwise, I will come to you, church, and fight against you. No, fight against who? Fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Who's the them? The few there, the some there who are holding to the what? The teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. So Jesus is saying, but who's he calling to repent? So repent, otherwise I'll come to you. Who's the you? The whole church. The whole church needs to repent if we're not exercising collective responsibility over the members of their church. Why do we have some members who are holding to idolatry and immorality while still holding to Jesus? Because we have not been responsible for them. We have not exercised responsibility faithfully for them. We've been too busy and too distracted to actually care for and get to know other church members and pray for them consistently. And so Jesus is saying, you as a church, you need to repent because if you don't, I hold you responsible for it. Now, the only reason, the, the main reason we can understand, uh, the only way you can understand the, the weight of this command to repent corporately is if you understand collective responsibility. In other words, God is not only your savior, he is your father, when you think of God only as Savior, then you think of yourself only as saved. And as long as I'm saved, I'm good, right? But if you think of God as Father, then you think of yourself as what? Family. And when, we ha when you have family, what do you have? What, 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 the blessing of family comes with what? Responsibility, right? You have relationships now you have to care about. You can't just turn your back and do your own thing in family. And so if you believe in God only as Savior then you think you're good with Jesus. But if you believe in God as father, then you are responsible for your family as his adopted children. Churches often have a lax attitude toward immorality and idolatry because they're only focusing on their own Christian lives. And we also have a lax, lax attitude towards idolatry and immorality because we haven't dealt with it in our own hearts. And when you don't deal with it in your own hearts and you see another member who's struggling with it, you pull your punch, right? How can I, how can I confront you when I'm not repenting myself and I know I'm being a hypocrite myself? And so when you fill the church with enough people feeling a low-level guilt of hypocrisy, then you have a silent church that doesn't take responsibility for each other's discipleship because they don't deal with their own sin or they're not open and vulnerable in confessing their own sin. And so they come to church on Sunday and they greet each other and they just try to make it through a Sunday without anyone asking them a tough question so they can get back in the car and be like, Whew, I made it through another Sunday without somebody asking and without me having to say what I really need to say for the good of my soul. And it's dangerous. It's more than dangerous. It's damning. Because Jesus said he's going to take his sword and fight against them with the what? Sword of his mouth. And what is the sword of his mouth? In Revelation 19.15, it's the sword of his wrath and judgment and damnation where he slays his enemies. This is not a sword of discipline. 
There is a discipline that God does to his loved ones. Amen? Praise God, he disciplines us. But there's a different kind of, that, that's a rod, right? There's a rod of discipline. Praise God for the rod, and praise God the rod is not double-edged and a blade, right? Um, but, but, but there is a double-edged sword, and some of the church members will be slain by that sword of damnation because they've held to the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, and they come every Sunday, and they're part of the church family. That's my second greatest fear, that we have some here that think they're going the right direction, and we fail to use Hebrews 12, 15's word, we fail to obtain the grace of God. Hebrews 12 says, see to it that no root of bitterness takes, takes root within you that springs up, causing you to fall short of the grace of God. And that bitterness is a good, I mean, bitterness is a good example of the teaching of Balaam, right? I can hold to Jesus and be bitter towards that one person because I'm just bitter towards that one person. That's probably a lot more common in our church than other things. I can resent that person and still hold to Jesus, right? Right? Right, Jesus? Teaching of Balaam is not that bad, is it? And Christ pulls out his sword and threatens the church. So, brothers and sisters, let's repent corporately. Let's have a heart of repentance for our church and for ourselves as members of this church. We are responsible to encourage each other daily as long as it's still called today, right? That's what Hebrews 3, 12, and 13 says. Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you, church, an evil, unbelieving heart causing you to fall away from the living God. But instead, encourage each other, how often? Daily, while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. So we repent. Father, forgive us for, for not uh, encouraging each other daily. Daily. And making sure that we don't have a hardened heart individually with compromising, syncretistic, side-door Balaam-ish teaching where we compromise and still think we're okay because we're holding to the gospel in our minds. Church family, or Christian, member of this church, check your heart from false, for false teaching and compromise. And confess your hard heart. I praise God that today I don't have the hard heart that I had Saturday and Friday and Thursday. But I had a hard heart Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And when I was at the men's retreat, I was preaching and I confessed to everybody there, brothers, pray for me because I have a hard heart right now. And I know God is calling me to desperation, but I don't feel it. But confess your hard-heartedness. Don't hide it. Don't wait, to, don't wait for someone to ask you. Ask you. Be, take initiative. Be proactive. Be preemptive. Confess when you start to feel your heart get hard. Share it with others so that they might help you grow in Christ. If you're not a Christian, you might say, you know what, this is why I would never want to be a Christian, because you guys are like putting on that straight jacket, that ethical straight jacket, and you're just restraining yourselves, and you're binding yourself to this really old book, and you're saying you can't do anything you want, and you're held to all of these commands. Man, I don't want this ethical straight jacket over me. I want freedom. I want to be free. If you're not a Christian, you might say, you know what, Christianity is straight up slavery, to all of these rules, I want to be free. Well, I could understand that sentiment because I want to be free as well. But what you need to understand is that no one is really free. Everyone is a slave of their ultimate master. You're free from everything else, or you're, you're a slave to your master and free from everything else. But everyone's a slave of some master and free from all of their masters. But everyone has one master, and you're free from all of their masters. 
So if you are saying, I don't want Christianity, I don't want Jesus, I don't want to be a slave to him, well, guess what? You might be a slave to your family. You might be a slave to your career. You might be a slave to the thought of not being a slave. But you are a slave to something. You have some guiding light that you are committed to radically without any hesitation or qualification, and everything else has to bow to the fact that you're committed to that one master. The only difference is for Christians, our master is Jesus, and he died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we are forgiven and given eternal life. We have known the truth, and the truth has set us free. If you're not a Christian, we offer you freedom and slavery. We offer you freedom from your false masters that have bound you and oppressed you, and we offer you the greatest master who is not oppressive in the least bit. He is completely loving and humble. He actually became a man and humbled himself to the point of death, and he died on the cross for your sins, and he rose from the dead. He bound himself so that you won't have to be bound, so that you can be free from the judgment of God and free to enjoy God forever. He cut himself off from the joy of God, and he was forsaken by the Father on the cross. Christ died for sinners and rose from the dead. This is the greatest news in the world. If you're not a Christian, I happily invite you, I enthusiastically invite you to have freedom and life in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins, turn from your other masters, and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation and life and freedom and joy. And let a church family help you walk in this freedom because the, slave, the oppressive slave masters that want to kill us are tempting and alluring at times. So we have a church family to help. Jesus took the sword so that you don't have to. And lastly, last reason to repent. So repent because of, repent from repent and realize your sin and repent from it because you've endured satanic assault. Secondly, repent and realize you've sinned because you've been tricked through the back door of the teachings of Balaam. And then repent because thirdly, I don't know if I've said it, but I'll say it now even though I'm done with that point, because you'll avoid judgment. Because you, you will avoid judgment. Well, I think I said because Jesus holds you responsible. And, and he'll hold you responsible with judgment. And lastly, the last reason why, last reason why you need to repent. Uh, verse 17. Repent because, look at verse 17. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. That's not the reason yet, but that's just a call. We need to listen to God's word. The Holy Spirit speaks through the Bible. He speaks through this passage. The question is not whether he's speaking. The question is are we what? Listening. And here's what he's saying. He rewards the churches. And so what's the reward here? The, the reason we, we repent is because Jesus gives you the reward. What's the reward here? This is going to excite you, right? You want your reward? Here's a reward. You get hidden manna behind door number one, hidden manna. Behind door number two, a white stone. A white stone with a new name inscribed on it that no one knows except those who receive it. You guys excited? Excited for the eternal reward? I hope so. Well, let me explain it. Maybe the explanation will make you more excited. Okay. I understand how it might not initially be exciting. Okay. Door number one, hidden manna. What is, what is the hidden manna? The short answer is, I'm not exactly sure, but I've, there's three good guesses. And they're all, it's, it's somewhere in here. Either number one, do you know where the, what, what, what was the manna in the story of the Bible? It was manna, where did it come from? It, came, it was miraculous bread from heaven to feed God's people wandering through the wilderness or the desert, Right? And so, so you get some of the hidden manna. What is the hidden manna? It's the manna that, was, that God provides to sustain your life. But it's the hidden manna. Why is it hidden? 
It's hidden. Where was the hidden manna in the Old Testament? They took some of the manna from the ground, and where did they put it? Anyone know? In the Ark of the Covenant. Now, is the Ark, in the, is the Ark of the Covenant something that everyone, any day of the week, you just want to see what's in there? You, you get to go walk in the Holy of Holies and just pull up the lid and be like, oh, there's the hidden manna. It's not so hidden now, right? Because you could, you could look in it. Is that, does everyone have access to the Ark? No, nobody has access to the Ark ever. It's hidden. It's there, but you don't have access to it. But if you get the hidden manna, if this is the, if this is the right answer, this means you get access to the Holy of Holies. You get access to the Ark of the Covenant. You get the hidden manna. You get to walk in God's full blazing presence in the new heavens and new earth and enjoy God without any shame, without any guilt forever. That's the hidden manna. If that, and, and so it's joy in God forever, in the holiest of holies. Or another answer might be, and these are all kind of saying the same thing, it's the spiritual bread from heaven given to the rest of the world. I'll just say this as my second and last answer. Jesus said in, in John 6, um, you guys are longing. Remember he fed the 5,000 and they start following Jesus everywhere because they want more free food, right? Free food for my family of five? I got five kids plus me and my wife? You're going to feed us every day? Dude, I'm following you everywhere, right? So people are following Jesus everywhere for free, free food and fish, right? Free, free bread and fish. And Jesus says, don't work for the manna. That, that, you know, feeds you and you'll get hungry again. He says, I am the bread of what? Life. I came down from heaven. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have eternal life. And everyone's like, ugh, what? You're nasty, Jesus. Talking about eat your, eat your body and drink your blood? And Jesus doesn't even, he doesn't even explain it. He's like, yep. You, still want, you want it or not? And then uh, large crowds walk away. And then the disciples are there, and he says to the disciples, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. It was hidden to everyone else, but to those who trust in Christ, he is the hidden manna. He's the bread of life. Either way, now whichever one of those two views, you still end up at the same place, right? Eternal life with God forever. If you repent from of us neglecting our responsibility as a church to hold each other responsible for the teaching of Balaam, we will get eternal life, feasting on Christ in the new heavens, the new earth forever and ever and ever. Amen? The second one here, door number two, is the white stone with a new name written on it that's inscribed on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, the white stone could be one of two things. White stone could be number one, um, there were white stones that were tickets Given to, if you were in an athletic competition and you won, you received a white stone, which was a ticket. And you took that white stone to the, the feast of champions, and you were able to enter in and have a feast among the champions, the winners. There's like a winner's feast. And so the white stone could refer to that ticket admission, because it, it always says to the one who conquers, to the victor, to the champion. So if you conquer and you win the, the competition against Satan and the world and the devil and, and the sin in your heart, you win that competition, you get the white stone. You get to enter the feast forever in heaven. Maybe it means that. The white stone was also used in, ancient, in the ancient Near East. It was also used as um, the way we voted for those who were on trial. The jury used white and black stones. So you were tried, and if you say guilty, you got a black stone. If you were innocent, you were given a... White stone. So either way, I don't know which one of those it might have been, the white stone might be signifying you get to enter this feast of victors, or it might mean that you're not guilty and you're not going to be damned or imprisoned, but instead you are free. 
Either way, the one who conquers, the one who repents, the Christians in this church who repent for not taking responsibility for each other's discipleship in the teaching of Balaam and sneaky syncretism, those who do that and conquer Satan, you will receive eternal life, either the feast in the end or freedom from hell. Either way, it's the same thing, right? And the point is, you get that and a new name is inscribed on it. Is that your name or Jesus' name? I used to think before I studied it that it was a new name that we all get for ourselves. Now I'm inclined sort of to think it's Jesus' new name because you're the new creation. And so you get to know his new name in the new creation. And, and it's just your special access and your personal connection to Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know which one it is, but it's something like that. But you get the point. The point is new creation, new earth, eternal life, joy in God for those who repent. And so, brothers and sisters, repent. Let's relish our relationship with Christ. Let's remind each other of the eternal reward. If you're not a Christian, what are you looking forward to after death? What are you looking forward to in your life? We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. So here's the final call. Realize and repent of allowing tricky and compromised teaching to have life in our midst. Realize and repent. Why? Because you've endured satanic result, assault, because you've been tricked through the back door, some of our members have been, because Christ holds us as a church responsible, and lastly, because you'll get the eternal reward. I have a friend, and some of you know the story. I say this so often because it's so vivid. I have a friend that I grew up in with the church, and somehow he got a rogue teaching about, um, about the truth of some scriptural texts. And we were church leaders together, we were youth leaders together, and he's gone so far overboard in sexual immorality and idolatry. What is this? I don't know, uh, 15 years, 16 years later? But you would have never guessed in that three-month span when he was wrestling with some things that the teaching of Balaam could lead to immorality and idolatry like it has. Praise God he's not dead, so maybe God will grant him grace to repent. But um, that's what happens when you have teaching of Balaam in the church and it goes unchecked. At the same time, I've been part of churches where we've had members commit sexual immorality and fornication, and we've excommunicated them, and they've repented and come back to the Lord, and they're walking with Jesus Christ today because the church repents and takes responsibility for each other's discipleship as a church. They understand that they're responsible for each other. So if we don't repent, brothers and sisters, we may see some of our dear church members on the wrong side of the sheep and goats in the final judgment. It might even be you or me. But if we realize and repent of our sin, we will be refreshed with spiritual power to strengthen our brothers. We will speak the truth in love to each other. We'll have a sense of responsibility to help, help our team and to continue to make disciples of our neighbors and among the nations. So I say what I've said already. Let's realize our sin and compromise. Let's repent and let's help each other follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take this message to the church at Pergamum and help the members of Bethany Baptist Church take this into their hearts and lives. We pray for our friends here from other churches that they would take this message as well and practice it in their church families. We pray for our Christian friends here who are not members of a church, that they would obey you and join a church to take responsibility for each other's discipleship collectively and individually. And we pray for our non-Christian friends here that you would make the beauty and majesty and love of Jesus so powerful and true, let it ring true in their hearts because it's objectively true, that they would come to Jesus and repent and have eternal life and join the family of God. 
Only you can do this. And so we're only asking you in the mighty name of Jesus to do this because he died for us and rose for us. And so it's in his name we pray, amen.